Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast on this Saturday at noon. Uh, my name is Sam Maxwell, and uh, today we are going to be talking with Brooklyn Dodgers reader author Andy Mealy, who has been on the show before, and we welcome him back with open arms. Andy, how you doing? Good, good. Thanks very much, Sam. Appreciate it. Well, obviously, you know, you're kind of a pinch hitter today. Uh, my my guest, who was supposed to be on, uh, had to take a rain check. Uh, so we, you and I really weren't able to prep or talk too much. So what is the first thing on your mind about the Brooklyn Dodgers? Well, uh, for me, the, you know, the Dodgers, that, that era that uh, that everybody talks about, everybody knows about from, say, 47 when Jackie Robinson broke in. And I was uh, telling somebody the other day about it. I said I, I was about eight years old when – Jackie broke in, 47. And when they left Brooklyn, I was like 19 or going on 19. So it was like for me, it was my growing up years. You know, we grew up with the team. It it means a lot. You're a a kid. Everything was baseball to us and uh, stickball, of course. And we went to ball games all the time. And it was was a terrific uh, uh, way to grow up. And it was was a wonderful thing to have. Uh, It's amazing that they have lasted this long. They, they've become, uh, you know, legendary, and uh, I guess for a number of reasons. But, uh, you know, it, it makes it just that much, much more exciting to look back on it. And I've been, I, I think I mentioned you, I've been working on this, uh, on a book about the 53 Dodgers. And mm-hmm. the reason I zeroed in on 53 is because I consider them to be the best National League team in history. Uh, it was a great, great ball club. And it's, uh, you know, but, but the, the, the period... Uh, was was very exciting too because not only in in uh, in baseball but in the world. I mean, it was a the fifties were like a transition period. Uh, new things were happening. There were a lot of changes, uh, and not just baseball. I was speaking with Carl Erskine, and Carl said to me, "You know, if you think about it, he says, during those ten years or eleven years, he said we went from day ball to night ball. We integrated the game." Planes replaced the trains, radio became TV, and we went from the East Coast to the West Coast. So there was a lot of things that, that happened, and, and, you know, sometimes you kind of think back on it as uh, the 50s is kind of a, a, a tranquil period and not too much happened, but it did. I mean, look what was going on in the world. They had the Korean War. The war ended. The Cold War began. And maybe now it's nothing, but when we were kids, you know, we used to have drills in school where you had to jump under the desk and all that and right. turn away from the window so you don't, so if a bomb exploded, you know, things like that, that people, people actually built uh, uh, shel- uh, shelters, bomb shelters under the ground in their backyards and things. So it was, you know, it, 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 uh, uh, whether it was meaningful or not, it was pretty serious to the people that were living there. But there was a lot of good things happening. And and like I said, baseball was a great time. They call it the golden age. It was certainly golden age in New York. Uh, you know, we had three teams here then, you know, the Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Giants. And the seasons from 47 to 57, think about 11 years, there was at least one New York team in the World Series 10 times. And this is before you had all these, uh, you watered down the World Series with all these playoffs and second-place teams and all that kind of stuff. Uh, these were the two best teams, and in, 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 the best team in each league played each other in the World Series. And uh, uh, there were, when I was doing this research, I came across some interesting things. There were 13 Most Valuable Player Awards during, the, the, during that, that decade presented to uh, New York ballplayers. There's uh, 15 players and managers in the Hall of Fame from that year alone. And speaking of the Hall of Fame, uh, I looked at the rosters 
the uh, beginning opening day rosters of the all the major 16 major league teams in 1953, and there were something like 26 or 27 players who would go on to be Hall of Famers, and that doesn't include guys that came up later, like Ernie Banks came up late, latter part of the year, August or September, and in the next year you Hank Aaron, and you know, so it was it was it was pretty uh, a, a pretty good period of time uh, to be living and to be interested in baseball in New York. Well, my you know my pitch with this series is it's about Brooklyn, the Dodgers, and how both were affected by the rapid transition into modern America. So when you say, yeah. from, from my perspective, having not lived it, looking back on it, and you, you talk about how, uh, you know, what kind of tumultuous times they were in, in many fashion. Uh, yeah. yeah, they, they were, you know, they were trucking heavily into a completely new world. And, and, and uh, a lot of the decision makers were all gung-ho and not conservative about going into that world and, and uh, you know, affected a lot of different things. But uh, going with the 53 Dodgers, what are some of the, uh, the your favorite things that you're uh, discovering now? So, you know, stuff that you might not have even realized, uh, even having grown up during it. Well, uh, the, the first thing, that one of the reasons I said, aside from the fact the initial idea is that they were such a great team, and as I said, I think they were the best of them, but uh, if you go a little bit beyond that, there were uh, uh, there were other things involved. Uh, remember that uh, Jackie Robinson, in his seventh year, but there was still uh, this racial turmoil, and there were some incidents that happened that year on the field involving not only Robinson but also Roy Campanella. And uh, although there were there were more, there were a couple of more over the next few years. 53 seemed to be the year, at the transitional year, as I said, and, and that kind of stuff was kind of uh, drifted away after that. It got a little bit better, and, and it, you know, it evolved into, into what, it, what it became later on. But uh, another thing was uh, probably the greatest rivalry anywhere were the Giants and the Dodgers, and it was especially so in this era because uh, one of the really instigators was Leo DeRocher, and he had gone from Brooklyn in the middle of 48, he went over to manage the, the Giants. And uh, he became, an, you know, one day he was, hey, Leo, oh boy, Leo the Lip. The next day he was the enemy, you know. He went right over to the Giants. So he was, uh, uh, you know, one of these uh, stick it in his ear guys. In those days, they yelled from the dugout, stick it in his ear. You know, and there was no secrets about it. And uh, he picked on, uh, you know, Jackie Robinson and uh, Campanella got hit a lot, got thrown at, and Carl Farrillo was a, was a target. And Ferrillo was not the kind of guy to take anything lying down. And this year wound up with him uh, with the big fight in September. He he jumped into the dugout to go after the Roshan. It was a, you know, it was a, a an interesting uh, interesting thing that happened. But uh, there was also uh, a certain uh, there's a great human story. Jill Hodges is maybe one of the most, certainly one of them, maybe the most popular Dodger. They always said he was never booed in Brooklyn. Uh, uh, of course, part of that was, uh, you know, he married a, a, a girl, Joan Lombardi, from Brooklyn, and he settled here, stayed here year-round. But he was uh, uh, always very well, very well, highly regarded by everybody who ever met him or talked to him. Andy, I'm sorry that we got cut off, but uh, please continue about the 53 Dodgers. Yeah. We talking now? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we're back on there. Right, I was talking about uh, Gil Hodges. Uh, his, the problem that he encountered in 53, 
he had gone the last uh, dozen or so at bats in 52 without getting a hit. Then he went into the World Series and he went 0 for 21, no hits. But then this 53 season started and he wasn't hitting in the spring. He hit a couple of home runs, but that was about it. Season started and by mid-May he was hitting 187 or something like that. And he was actually benched for a few days. And then that it be, there's that story that makes it sound, you know, almost mythical. With the, but apparently it's true. There, there was a priest by the name of Redmond, Father Redmond, at a, I think it was St. Francis Xavier Church. And one hot Sunday morning, uh, he got up on the pulpit and he said, "Look, it's too hot for a sermon. Go home, keep the commandments, and say a prayer for Gil Hodges." And that yeah. became kind of like a legendary story. But uh, oddly enough, he came back a, a, a couple of days. I think he was out about five games. And then he, from there he started hitting, and he went on to have, I thought, a phenomenal season when you consider that at the end of May he had one home run. He wound up with 31. He had the one RBI, wound up 122, and he did hit 302, so he had a terrific season. And uh, there was that human factor. He used to get people would send him uh, rabbit's feet and, and uh, uh, prayer medals and all that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it, 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 the people were part of what was going on. Uh, another thing about the 50s is when you, I, I mentioned the Hall of Famers, when you looked at the other teams, and we had two, both leagues here, so you could see the American League and the National League. And when you went out to the ballpark, I mean, look at the guys that you can go see play. Stan Musial, uh, Hank Aaron came the next year. Uh, Willie Mays was in the Army, but he came back the next year too. But uh, Warren Spahn and Robin Roberts, uh, magnificent pitchers, were, were in the National League. You had uh, Bobby Fella, and, and Satchel Page was pitching with the uh, 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 with the uh, Browns at that time, with oh, Bill the Browns. Zek. Okay, I'm sorry. He yeah, was with right. the Browns then, with uh, with Bill Zek. So uh, you know, it was it was just uh, a phenomenal time. Uh, the rivalry uh, with the Dodgers and the Giants really meant that every time these guys played each other, there were knockdowns. That's all that went on. Boom! This guy went the next inning. The other guy went down. <laughs> and and that's the way they played the game. And uh, you know, I'm not saying it, it was. Yeah, right or wrong, because you know, I guess it's dangerous. You know, the, uh, people throwing at people's heads, but that's the way the game was played. It was rough and tumble, and uh, so, so it, it was exciting. There's no question about it. And I, I said, in those those years, those 11 years, the three teams would have fielded 33 teams, 11 each. And the 53 Dodgers was, to me, the best of them all, although the 52 Dodgers was pretty close uh, second. And I know people say, well, they didn't win the World Series, so how could you say they were, they were the best? But uh, the World Series, to me, when it comes to naming, uh, looking at a team for a season, the World Series is immaterial because it's a short series. It's seven games. Sometimes it even goes down to the seventh game, and when it does, it's, it's just uh, it's one ball game, and usually it relies on, on a pitcher. And... Uh, both teams, in those days, too, you had to look at something else. Why I always say the World Series has lost so much now. But, you know, uh, if, if the teams that won the pennant, uh, if, as long as they were able to have their rotation set, those first couple of games, they, you had, they had their two best pitches. Both teams, uh, 1949 was an example. Uh, Allie Reynolds beats Don Newcomb one nothing in the first game. Preacher Rowe beats Vic Rashi one nothing in the second game. And these were four, four of the best pitchers in the major leagues. Today, uh, pitcher starts with these playoffs, and he'll go through three or four games before he gets to the World Series. 
So if he does well, if he's like, you know, pitched three good games or four good games, and then he gets knocked down in the first game of the series, what the heck? You can't blame him. He, uh, uh, he's, he's not perfect. You know, he's, he's, so he's three and one or four and one. But uh, so you're not seeing, you're not seeing the World Series today, you're not seeing the best showcase that you could see. And you did back in those days. Right, right, exactly. Uh, it looks like Roy Campanella had, had quite the year. Did he win the MVP that year? Yeah, he won the MVP in 53. He won it in 51, 53, and 55. Oddly, he had terrible years in between. That's because he kept having physical problems. And, uh, uh, and so in 52, uh, he had a bad year. He had uh, problems with his hands, uh, his fingers, his elbow, and all that. And, and uh, you know, that was one of the question marks in the spring. Uh, was he going to be able to come back? Would he be healthy? Which, of course, he was. Another question mark was called Ferrillo. Because in 52, Ferrillo was having some trouble with his eyes. And they told him, I think, they, I think it turned out to be cataracts. And uh, he said, well, it's just some grit in the eyes. And he didn't want to be operated on, so he didn't bother. And he had a terrible year also in 52. So 53 in the spring, in January, February, something like that, he went for an operation. And, you know, of course, he went on, he hit 344 and won the batting title. So uh, he, he, those question marks were... were uh, were solved. But Duke Snyder also, talking about a transition, Duke Snyder came into his own, really, in that 52 World Series, and uh, they wrote about it. I forgot who wrote, uh, Al Stump or, or one of those guys, wrote in Sport Magazine at the time an article about uh, has, has, uh, has the World Series made Duke Snyder? Because in 50, he had a terrible series in 49. And then in 52, he had four home runs. He batted about 340 or something. And uh, he kind of turned the corner. And in 53, he hit 41 home runs, and that was the first of five consecutive 40 home run years, which at the time tied him with uh, Ralph Kiner for for a record, a a National League record. Five consecutive years of 40 home runs. Oh, Andy, I'm I'm sorry to correct you, but it looks like he's actually uh, 42 home runs with Duke Snyder. 42? Yeah, 42, oh, then, then Campy hit 41. Campy hit 41 in 142 yeah, RBI. One of them had 42, and Hodges had 31. So let's let's talk about some of the the, uh, the smaller guys on this on these teams, uh, because um, Carl and I we were talking about. I believe it was 53 actually uh, on the air, and uh, Dick Williams and and, and uh, George Schuber, some of the the players we talked about. What are some yeah. some things that come to mind? Let's start with Dick Williams. Well, Dick Williams, you know, I, I don't, I, I mean, of course I remember him, but he, you know, you have to remember, he's one of those guys that, uh, uh, let, me, let me see, I got in front of me. He's one of those guys who, uh, you know, they, they always, every year, uh, they had these young ball players, and they always said, uh, oh, this guy, that guy, and then they could never break the lineup. They could never break the, uh, the, the, the Wee Reese and, and, and Jackie Robinson and Gil Hodges. So, Williams was another one of those guys, uh, along with in 53, they had outfields with Dick Williams, Don Thompson, they had Antonello, uh, George Schuba, and, and those guys didn't play more than uh, 30 or 40 or 50 games, give or take. Well, Thompson played uh, a little more than that, and Schuba played a little more than that. But still, they had, you know, 150 at-bats, 50 at-bats, something right. like that. So it, they, they were... They were uh, it was great because they a lot of them were good. Here's an example. Wayne Bellotti, who had had a, a breakout season in the minors the year before in AAA ball with 
a bunch of home runs. I don't know what he hit, 28 home runs or something. And uh, here's a guy, and he got a chance with the Dodgers because they were using Gil Hodges in left field, and they had him on first base. And he did hit home runs. He hit 11 home runs that year. And this was mostly in, in pinch hitting and, and playing part-time. But he didn't hit at all. He hit about 230, and, uh, you know, he, he dropped out of it too. It's very hard, very difficult for these guys to play once a week and, and to show anything. But it was hard for them to break in. And uh, every year you had, you had infielders too. You had, a, uh, you had a, a, a Jim Gilliam, but you had a Don Hoke, Bobby Morgan. Uh, uh, there was a guy named Jim Baxis in the spring who I think got sent back right away. They were all uh, uh, potential third basemen, as a matter of fact. But Jim Gilliam did come along that year. Yeah, out of the farm system. And there was the first of that, I mentioned the racial problems that were going on. Uh, Carl said everything was good on that club, that, that, that he, he didn't hear any murmurings uh, among the steadies. Now, some of the, some of the, uh, the scrubinis there might have, the, the, you know, sitting on a the bench, the, these guys might have been complaining, hey, you know, we're here, and they're bringing this guy up, and, and maybe the fact that he was black uh, uh, set some against him, I don't know. But the point was that... Uh, in the spring, there was a hullabaloo about it. There were some articles in the papers. Dick Young, Roger Kahn, uh, Milton Gross all wrote about it in a, in a racial way because apparently what had happened was nobody told uh, – they decided between Bavese and, uh, and uh, Charlie Dressen that they were going to sit Billy Cox on the bench, that Cox would, be, uh, would become more like a utility player. And you have to remember, Cox was – the greatest glove in the universe. I mean, there's never been a third baseman like Billy Cox. So uh, to sit him down is kind of uh, shocking. And without telling him, you know, he was an introverted guy, a sensitive guy, and that, that didn't set, set off too good with him. So the noise went out that the fact that Gilliam was black, making another a black player replacing a white player, kind of like that, you know. Uh, whether there was, uh, like I said, uh, Erskine says there really wasn't nothing going on in the club. It was more in the papers, and maybe it was. But, but that, that started it. And then once that passed, I mean, Gilliam was a damn good ball player, and he, he had a good year, and it wound up that Cox wound up playing 100 games, which was uh, – and he had his best year. He had 291, which was his best season. But he was a superb glove man. And, uh, uh, now, really uh, it, it says here that Jackie Robinson played the outfield that year. Did he play the mm. majority of the year in the outfield? Yeah, what happened was the idea was for Robinson to go to third base. And I think an opening day, they sat Cox. Robinson was at third, and I think he pulled the muscle the first day. So Cox went right back in the game, the first game. And then when Robinson came back, he played some third base, and then he went played. Uh, uh, he started. He went into the outfield. He wound up playing left field most of the time, more towards the latter part of the season, as Cox played third base and Gilliam played second base. And uh, you know, it was uh, it turned out to be a really good thing, a really good move the way it worked yeah. out. Right. Right. Of course. Um, so, what are some other things from the uh, the 1953? Uh, season that comes to mind. It, it, it's quite the remarkable year for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah, well, they they led the league in just about every offensive category. Uh, they, they were actually they were explosive. And what I did was uh, in, in in this writing I'm doing, I compared them to some other teams. And of course, you know, it's always hard to make comparisons, but like a couple of the National League teams, like the 1906 Cubs was always considered one of the great teams in the National League, but you can't compare the eras. 
Because if you do, you find out that the Cubs had superior pitching. But, of course, there was no power in those days, so they don't even come close to comparing uh, in, in offensive numbers. And what surprised me was the later teams. I looked at teams like uh, the, uh, the Cincinnati Reds, the big red machine, 76. And I'll tell you, there's no comparison. They don't even come close to the Dodgers. I mean, I think right. they had best home run hitter was like 29 or something like that. And they, they didn't score nearly as many runs. Uh, later on, I think it was in the late 90s, 98 maybe, Atlanta Braves had a club that, that rivaled them in, in numbers. But again, uh, the, both those, those two teams played 162-game schedule. So they did have eight extra games to pile up a few more home runs and all that. But the Dodgers at the time, uh, I, they were second in home runs in history. There were 208, I think it was. They were uh, uh, behind the 47 Giants. And uh, uh, they, they scored, they, they had a, one of the highest batting averages, I think uh, 285. And I think uh, the only team that beat them was in 930 when they had that crazy hitter season where everybody went crazy. With the, the league as a, as a whole hit over, over 300. The, the eight regulars on that Dodger team in 53, the eight regulars combined hit 308. Now, I mean, you had that was devastating hitting from top to bottom. So it was a it was a fabulous ball club. And then you look at the pitching, and the pitching wasn't anything to really write home about. Though so Carl Erskine had his best year with 20 yeah. wins, uh, well, six losses, know, a three, 354 ERA. Yeah. Well, there's another thing that, that makes me laugh today. Uh, I was just uh, there was a game on this morning, LA, and uh, that fellow Kershaw. What's his name? Kershaw. Kershaw. Yeah, Kershaw. Kershaw. Kershaw, yeah. He was the, he was the Cy Young last year. I think he won 16 games, and he gets the Cy Young Award. Here, if you look, uh, uh, Russ Meyer uh, won 15. Billy Lowe's won 14. Uh, in those days, the, uh, the second, third, and fourth pitches won 14, 15, 16, 18 games. And right. now they give them Cy Young Awards for that. But uh, the, the, the pitching was... Uh, you know, I, you can criticize it, but when you really look at it, Meyer fifteen and five, Lowe's whatever fourteen and six, Preacherow who was end, uh, getting to the end of his career still, I think he was eleven and two or eleven and three. Uh, uh, who's the other? I'm trying to think of. Uh, oh, Clem Labine. How about Clem Labine? Uh, yeah, Labine won. Uh, what did he win? Uh, Eleven, 11 games, games that year. And, you and, know, uh, I mean, but he made a lot of appearances. You look at you look at the you look at the the last. Uh, you know, Johnny Padres was the the number five, quote unquote. But he had 115 innings. And then in the bullpen, you know, just the way the uh, the uh, baseball reference splits it up, um, you have 117 innings from Bob uh, Milliken and right. 110 in, and 110 innings for Clem Levine. Right. And Jim Hughes was in there someplace, wasn't he? I don't know how many innings he had, but he did a lot of relief work that year. What was, what was that? Name? Jim Hughes. Yeah, Jim, Jim Hughes. Hughes. I think he had, had more appearances. Yeah, he had 85 innings. Oh, but he had more games than uh, than Labine or. Uh, or so, or, so what happened to what happened to Branca? Did he get traded or? Did yeah, he get well, Branca Branca wasn't. He started the year with them, and they weren't they weren't using him. I mean, he he made a few relief, and then he got traded to Detroit. Uh, I think it was around June, okay. and that was it. You know, I don't know where he, after that he he drifted away. But that was the end for him. But 
it was really they had the, the they had four four good pitches because uh, they 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 were worried about the pitching in the spring, and that's how they made that trade for Russ Meyer. And there's a funny story too. Russ Meyer, I don't know if you if you know, he was called the Mad Monk. That was his nickname because he was a tempestuous guy. He used to he used to he had a terrible temper. Uh, one time there's a, there's a funny story, and I remember when it happened. Uh, he got so mad, he was yelling at the umpire, and he got so mad, he threw the uh, rosin rosin bag up in the air, 30 feet in the air, and then when it came down, it hit him right on top of the head. So the umpire threw him out of the game, and as he goes in the dugout, and he, he made an obscene gesture, was picked up by the camera, he got fined, suspended. But that's the way he was, very tempestuous. But what happened was he had a feud with Jackie Robinson because uh, uh, he would uh, – you know, he, he would, uh, Robinson would, would steal him blind. He would run the bases like crazy on him. And he would get very mad. And they had a couple of run-ins. One of them, I think, uh, either the year or, or maybe it was 51, uh, they had Robinson in a rundown. And you seen third and home. And he crashed into Meyer and knocked the ball out of his hand, and he scored the run. And Meyer challenged him and uh, to come into the clubhouse, and uh, and then Robinson was came on as it was going after him, blah 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 blah, and uh, it didn't go anywhere. But when Myers came over in the spring, he said the first thing that happened, he walked into the he said, "What the heck is going to happen now?" And he walked into the locker room, and the first guy to come over to him was Jackie Robinson. He said, "Hey, listen, we're on the same team now. Let's get them together." And, and Myers said, "That you know, no problem. You know, that cleared the air." So uh, th- these guys, they were just just t- uh, you know hard competitors. And, and that's the way they played the game. But uh, Meyer was, was, was a good pitcher. He had, he had probably maybe his best year. I think he won 17 a couple of years before, but he had a, a better percentage this year. And yeah, he, was he, so he won, he won uh, 15 games and lost yeah. five, but with yeah. a four five six ERA, though. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you something about the earned run average. Uh, they talk about today. Looking, they're starting to say they don't want to pay attention to wins anymore. They want to look at like earned run average. But the thing is that these guys pitch half a game today. You know, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? They 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 clock in and they don't wait for the day to be over. They're working. It's like you know, you go to work at nine o'clock in the morning, you leave at twelve o'clock, and go home. That's what these guys are doing. So it's a lot easier to have a, a lower earned run average because you pitch four or five, six good innings. Uh, that that keeps the earned run average down. These yeah. guys that tried when they went into it. Their aim was to was to, most of these fellas with the uh, thirty starts like uh, like uh, Erskine had what about thirty three starts and I and he, I had sixteen complete games. They would pitch half of their games would be complete games except for the exceptional guys like Robin Roberts who had thirty three complete games that year. But the thing was that when these fellas when these fellas had to play uh, uh, these fellas uh, had to, they looked to pitch the whole nine innings so they paced themselves. And if they had a lead, maybe they'd ease up a little bit. And sometimes they gave up runs uh, when they, maybe they wouldn't have if they were, if, you know. So sometimes the earned run average is a little bit higher than it might have been if they were only pitching six innings at a time. So I don't. Right. So I think wins is a big thing. Yeah, I, I, and 15 wins is a substantial amount to get. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, we don't have too much time left. I know you got to get going on with your Saturday, but. Uh, you know what? What is what is the last word uh, on the 1953 Brooklyn Dodgers for you? Since you're working on this book, <laughs> you know what happened, uh, Roger. First of all, this was Roger Kahn's team. You know, his his boys' the summer book were the 52 and 53 Dodgers, and at the at the end of the book, 
the boys of summer, he wrote, he asked a rhetorical question. He says, who will remember? Is that the mind's last soundless dying cry? Who will remember? And my answer is, who can ever forget? <laughs> if you were there, if you were a part of that, and you remember it in any way, shape, or form, or you've read about it over the years, and especially when you look at what goes on today, you can't help but, uh, you know, you can't help but just, just revel for those days, you know? Exactly, exactly. And these stories are endless, and we look forward to hearing more. Andy, thank you very, very much for joining me on this Saturday afternoon. Thank you, Sam. It's my pleasure. Thanks again. Absolutely. Have Take a good care. one, and uh, that's our show, everybody. Take care. Bye.